Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. Labor Day, established as a federal holiday in 1894, is observed on the first Monday in September and falls on Monday, September 6th this year. While many think of Labor Day as the last day of summer and as an opportunity to have a final summer cookout with family and friends, Labor Day should serve as an opportunity to reflect on workers' rights and the labor movement. And one cannot talk about the challenges of laborers and workers in this country without confronting the plight of black and brown workers who endured the hardships of all workers, but were also subjected to additional harms due to discrimination by employers and unions alike. On this evening's show, we're going to talk about the history of Labor Day, labor unions, and the role race and racism have played in the labor movement. We are delighted to have joining us for our discussion, Professor William Gould IV. He is the Charles A. Beardsley Professor of Law Emeritus at Stanford Law School. Professor Gould is a prolific scholar in labor and discrimination law. He served as the chairman of the National Labor Relations Board from 1994 to 1998 and served as chairman of the California Agricultural Labor Relations Board from 2014 to 2017. Professor Gould was recently appointed by the San Francisco mayor to oversee an independent and comprehensive review of the city's equal employment opportunity policies and practices focusing on claims of bias, harassment, discrimination, and retaliation. He produced his final report and recommendations this past July. He is the author of several books, including Black Workers in White Unions, A Primer on American Labor Law, and forthcoming in 2022, a book titled For Labor to Build Upon, Wars, Depression, and Pandemic. Professor Gould, thank you for taking your time out of your busy schedule to be a guest on our show this evening. Oh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, as I noted in the intro, you are one of the preeminent scholars on labor and employment. Can you share a little bit about your background and how and why you became interested in labor and employment law and history? Well, um, I, uh, I think it really goes back to... Um, Brown against Board of Education, which was decided when I was a senior in high school. And uh, uh, until that point, I hadn't really been thinking about the law uh, very much, although I had become quite interested in government and political matters. And uh, when that decision came down, uh, the thought uh, dawned on me that uh, the law could shape uh, changes in uh, uh, race relations uh, throughout uh, the country. Um, I uh, aspired at that time to uh, be on Thurgood Marshall's staff uh, 
uh, with the NAACP, but uh, much to my consternation, I found out when I got to law school and found out most of the courses really had nothing to do with what I was particularly interested in, that Marshall only had four lawyers uh, and the uh, NAACP staff at that point in the uh, in the 50s. And so I became quite interested then in uh, organizations that I thought might be supportive of uh, civil rights. And uh, I had read in uh, books and uh, articles about the United Auto Workers and other CIO industrial unions that uh, had a more egalitarian approach to employment conditions than uh, some of the uh, craft unions that emerged in the uh, 19th century. And that really, uh, I would say, those, those uh, uh, factors triggered my uh, uh, interest and, and uh, commitment to uh, uh, pursuing a career in labor and uh, employment law. And and so where did you where did you grow up and what in terms of delving into the history can you share a little bit about what your early exposure um, what type of impression it made on you? Well, um, uh, I was born in Boston. Uh, uh, the uh, my great grandfather uh, settled in Boston in 1871 after his escape from slavery in North Carolina in uh, 1862. And the Goulds Goulds for more than a century uh, lived in Boston and in Dedham, Massachusetts. I moved away as a small child. My parents, uh, our family moved to New Jersey. And um, uh, I would uh, say that um, what what got me involved in this uh, was uh, again, it's kind of springing from, from some of the things that I had alluded to, uh, uh, a strong sense of, uh, uh, of, uh, of race, uh, you know, at the time that uh, uh, I can recall going to the local swimming pool in New Jersey, which was, you know, the Mason-Dixon line cuts through uh, New Jersey, but uh, I lived north of it in a little town called Long Branch. Uh, uh, but at that time, I remember going down to the swimming pool and the uh, swimming pool guy looking at me and saying, are you white or colored? Uh, if you're white, you can come in here. And if you're colored, you can't. And uh, these kinds of uh, things uh, uh, made me particularly uh, focused on the, uh, uh, on the race issue. And I, I then had a job as a, as a laborer uh, working on the roads. Uh, in uh, New Jersey, the Garden State Parkway, uh, uh, where I, uh, uh, and then um, uh, for the local water company, where I uh, literally, in those days, uh, had uh, a pick and shovel and uh, uh, had to dig down to uh, uh, find uh, where the leaks were coming from uh, uh, in water pipes. Very hard work. And uh, we were represented by a union. I took a great interest uh, in that, and uh, I suppose uh, uh, that uh, experience uh, and uh, other things of the kind that I've alluded to uh, really uh, shaped my focus on, uh, on on race, on labor, and on employment conditions. And of course, I was really lucky enough uh, when I was a student at Cornell Law School uh, to have a 
professor. This is really the greatest break in my professional life, uh, who had been on the legal staff of the United Auto Workers and who uh, was one of my professors in my first year and who gave us uh, an interesting problem that he himself had had some familiarity with in Detroit with the UAW, and it related to uh, the ability of unions to exclude uh, people on the basis of race. Uh, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 wasn't yet on the books, uh, but uh, the Supreme Court in 1944 had held, held in a case involving the railways that unions had a so-called duty of fair representation to employees that they represented or affected. And the railway unions were trying to drive uh, black workers out of the jobs in which they had been uh, in the railroads. They excluded them from uh, membership. The Supreme Court said that uh, these unions had a duty of fair representation, but they did not answer the question directly of whether the unions had an op- whether this duty of fair representation meant the duty to admit black workers uh, to their uh, membership. And so this problem that my professor uh, at Cornell Law School gave me related to uh, this next question, so to speak, what was the obligation of the unions in terms of their ability to, uh, their, their ability to exclude uh, black workers from their membership prior to Title VII? Well, you, you indicated that you had an early experience with the uh, United uh, Auto Workers. Uh, yes. That was uh, obviously one of the uh, giants in the uh, union uh, movement, and one obviously uh, that uh, involved a lot of uh, opportunities for uh, African Americans out of the Detroit uh, community uh, in the uh, auto uh, industry. Can you kind of talk about the, uh, the relevance and significance of uh, the uh, early struggle uh, with the uh, UAW and uh, African-Americans there in that uh, area uh, to uh, uh, push for uh, uh, representation by African-Americans in the, in the union movement. Yes. Uh, well, Walter Ruther was the uh, president of the union, a very fiery, articulate man whom I heard actually speak for the first time when I was at Cornell as a student and uh, very inspirational. Um, uh, You know, the first riots in Detroit took place during World War II when many of the white workers refused to work alongside of the black workers. So this is in the midst of the war. And Hitler, of course, made great hay with this saying, hey, here are these uh, Americans saying that uh, uh, they're uh, uh, against the things that we're doing uh, uh, to uh, the Jews in Europe, but look what they're doing to uh, the blacks. Uh, they're no different than uh, we are. Well, Ruther jumped in and uh, su- supported uh, the idea of black and white together. With the, and, and when I got to the uh, UAW legal staff, I found and became very friendly with many uh, staffers. Uh, that Ruther and his caucus, uh, and really the caucus that opposed him as well, were were bringing in. Numbers were important. A large number of black workers in the industry coming out of the South, uh, hired in the uh, 
uh, in the 20s, the 30s, and, and the 40s. And I became uh, very friendly with a lot of the guys who uh, were involved in uh, uh, a struggle which focused not only on employers, but uh, on union practices. Uh, you know, inside the UAW itself, when I was on the legal staff, there were still segregated locals. And, uh, uh, and it wasn't against the law. And uh, we're trying to figure out how to, uh, how to get at this. And uh, of course, also, uh, there were very few or any blacks in the skilled trades jobs in automobile. Uh, the, uh, you know, all these plants had a lot of plumbers, electricians um, uh, who made uh, uh, top dollar and continue to make uh, top dollar, even though their numbers uh, have uh, gone down. Very few, if any, were blacks. Well, uh, this is the kind of uh, uh, focus we had. The UAW was very active in the 1963 March on Washington. Uh, and and supported the uh, uh, supported Dr. King. Uh, uh, you know that summer I got to the, the uh, Detroit. Uh, the uh, already the picket signs were in front of the department stores, uh, protesting what was going on in the South uh, and bringing it to the attention of uh, people in in Detroit. The Freedom Riders, uh, these very brave people, uh, many of whom gave up their lives altogether. Uh, were, were just emerging at, uh, at that point. And uh, I felt and still feel today that uh, those 60 years ago uh, that uh, the UAW, hardly perfect by any means, uh, I cover in detail in this book, Black Workers, uh, much of uh, their activity, but, but light years ahead of where others or most of the labor movement was at that time, both in terms of internal reforms, as well as uh, uh, their outlook on society generally, their willingness to ally, the, ally themselves with the NAACP, for instance. Yeah, and that's a, a good segue into um, kind of the history of, of unions. And why don't we start with the history and significance of Labor Day, which as I noted in the intro, uh, became a federal holiday in 1894, and and of course the focus of the holiday is thinking about the uh, contributions of of workers and laborers uh, laborers in this country. Can you share how Labor Day, the federal holiday, came about, and and the significance of having this recognized? Yes, well, the um, came about uh, because of. Uh, 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 worker and union upheavals, uh, particularly in the North, uh, in, in, in over issues uh, uh, relating to uh, how many hours of work I'd be compelled to work a, a day. You know, there were people working, uh, you know, as labor says today, it's the labor movement that brought you the weekend. It's labor movement that brought you these holidays. And that's right, because uh, in the 1880s, it was this protest movement uh, focused particularly upon uh, hours of work, uh, dangerous conditions uh, in a number of industries that created upheaval. Uh, the great Haymarket strike of uh, 1884 and uh, 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 this uh, and the Pullman, uh, 
uh, lockout and dispute in Chicago. Uh, this period in the 1880s and 1890s, labor uh, appears to be labor appears to be strengthening and growing uh, uh, substantially. And uh, President Grover Cleveland uh, uh, relying upon uh, working class uh, uh, votes, although pursuing policies that were uh, uh, not always uh, friendly to uh, unions, such as uh, uh, the first uh, president to really uh, support the idea of injunctions against uh, uh, union strikes. Uh, Cleveland uh, 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 signs uh, a uh, signs legislation. Uh, making uh, uh, Labor Day an official holiday, the uh, first Monday in September. Now, the, the, the day itself is, uh, is an interesting story because uh, in the early 1880s, uh, many of the unions uh, viewed uh, May 1st uh, as uh, the, the, the appropriate holiday. And uh, May 1st was, uh, uh, is still recognized uh, throughout the world as, as the Labor Day, but uh, there was a movement amongst uh, the more moderate unions um, and uh, President Cleveland to uh, uh, shift uh, the focus away from May Day and to provide for the holiday in September. We are talking uh, this evening uh, about the uh, history of uh, Labor Day and uh, race and, and labor and those things that impact uh, all of us, our guests. Uh, is uh, Professor William Gould IV, who is the Charles Beasley Professor of Law Emeritus at uh, Stanford Law School. And uh, he has been uh, so gracious uh, to join uh, with us uh, this evening. But we're going to take our break uh, right now, uh, and uh, we're going to come back and talk some more about Labor, Labor Day, and uh, your laboring uh, as we uh, move forward. So stay with us and we'll be right back. Good evening. My name is Hannah Gaines and I'm a current senior at North Carolina Central University. And this is your community event spotlight. The event that we are highlighting is the Black Farmers Market. This event is going on now and doesn't end until December 12th. It's from 1.30 p.m. to 4.30 p.m. at the Golden Belt. This was a great opportunity to not only get local products, but also an amazing way to support Black-owned businesses. You can learn more about this event by visiting www.durhamcommunityengagement.org events. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. And thank you so very much for uh, staying with us as we continue this uh, conversation about uh, Labor Day and uh, labor and the uh, role of uh, African-Americans and people of color in, uh, in, that, uh, in that movement. Uh, as you know, uh, among uh, African-Americans and uh, Latinos, uh, labor is in our DNA. Uh, uh, we, we start back. Uh, during the enslavement period, and clearly that was labor uh, intensive. Uh, and then as we worked through the uh, Jim Crow uh, era, again, we were still focusing on uh, labor. And uh, the uh, labor movement has meant a lot 
uh, to the uh, fight for uh, for civil rights uh, in this uh, in the, in this country, being strong supportive, being actively involved in helping to uh, really test out tactics uh, that were labor, later used in the uh, civil rights uh, movement. But uh, Dr. Uh, Professor Gould, can, can you talk a little bit about the role of the uh, of A. Philip Randolph and the uh, sleeping car porter union in the uh, in the labor movement and the growth of that and the acceptability of uh, of, of, of labor unions within African American communities? Well, A. Philip Randolph uh, plays a uh, a major role. Um, in this regard. Of course, uh, he, uh, the president of the uh, sleeping car porters, uh, the railway industry, the only uh, job that is, uh, uh, except for the limited uh, uh, numbers uh, uh, available in the uh, cab itself, uh, the only job open to Black Americans, uh, uh, the uh, Blacks are driven out of the fireman's job when the diesel comes in and uh, because it becomes a, a soft job as opposed to a tough, dirty job. And Randolph emerges in the railway industry in this connection. Now, Randolph uh, a, leads the March on Washington in 19, we talked about 63. He leads an earlier one in 1941 uh, to uh, stop uh, 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 discrimination by government contractors as uh, World War II is uh, uh, impending and uh, plays a, a big role as a voice uh, uh, against uh, discrimination by both employers and unions uh, uh, generally. He heads up a, an organization called the Negro American Labor Council, uh, which becomes a kind of a caucus uh, for uh, black uh, uh, workers in the uh, in the 1950s uh, and uh, inside the uh, labor movement, and uh, uh, he uh, uh, really crosses swords with uh, the leadership of the uh, AFL-CIO at that time because of his criticism of uh, the widespread existence of segregated uh, locals. I mentioned that. Even in the UAW, you know, the musicians are in many of the cities. The, the musicians had their the black uh, musicians had one place, the whites had the other, and uh, uh, the and there were many other local unions that were examples of this. Randolph was speaking out about this, uh, and uh, uh, George Meany, who was the head of the AFL-CIO. Uh, uh, said in one of the uh, gatherings, uh, who in the world appointed you? He used another word, which I don't think we can use on radio. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, appointed you as the leader of the uh, Negro people. And uh, uh, eventually, uh, the uh, leadership of the AFL-CIO uh, uh, is more, uh, is less hostile, uh, uh, talks about uh, making changes. They, they support, uh, even though they don't support the March on Washington in 63, they support Title VII itself, which prohibits discrimination for both employers and labor organizations and really spells the end of uh, segregated locals. They, they take that stand. Uh, 
Um, but in the 1960s and in the 70s, uh, Randolph, uh, the A. Philip Randolph Institute uh, uh, plays a role in uh, breaking down some of the barriers in construction industry. Uh, a whole new dispute arises. Uh, you, you, tobacco workers in North Carolina were part of this, where certain jobs were black jobs, certain jobs were white jobs, and you know how that would work out, who would get the, more, the better conditions, the better pay. And everybody recognized that this also had to end once Title VII was passed, where an enormous fight emerged uh, between the uh, unions and uh, uh, black workers uh, because uh, the unions, uh, e even there in, uh, North there in North Carolina, they said, okay, you can come into the white jobs, but you have to go to the bottom of the seniority line. You have to, uh, and, and which means that uh, if the layoff comes along, you're the first one to uh, go. And uh, you're going to only be able to improve if vacancies uh, occur. Well, uh, an enormous fight, uh, which lasted for more than a decade, broke out uh, between the unions and uh, black leadership ab about this particular matter. Uh, the Supreme Court in 1977, in a case called Teamsters against the United States, ultimately siding with the unions uh, against the uh, black workers. So. So there was this fight, the uh, workers saying, hey, you know, you support Title VII, that's great. But what about the way we actually implement Title VII? And it's those kinds of uh, controversies that have uh, created some tension. Now, as we have become more of a service economy um, uh, and we see a more low wage um, marginalized uh, uh, people who are disproportionately African-American, disproportionately Latino, uh, some of the unions have, uh, uh, of course, uh, expressed interest in trying to organize uh, the unorganized. And uh, uh, their effort uh, to, to do so has, uh, I think, begun to reshape or at least to present another face uh, to organized labor, uh, which uh, is more supportive of uh, equality uh, in employment conditions for all races, uh, the theory being that uh, no one can advance without the support of the other. And Martin Luther King, uh, in 1963, uh, in, the, in the 50s, in the early 60s, talked about uh, the unity of purpose, as he, as he put it that uh, uh, black uh, workers have with whites. Uh, he said, you know, blacks are, are working class people overwhelmingly. We have a natural uh, affinity and alliance with uh, the uh, labor movement. And uh, he has become, I think, a, a, a greater inspiration, his words uh, today, as many of the service unions have uh, uh, attempted to uh, uh, establish a new day to, uh, uh, as part of the campaign to organize the unorganized, to uh, promote minimum wage legislation, better health and safety legislation, as well as uh, strong 
Fair Employment Practices Law. Yeah, Professor Gould, the, this point that you raise about strength and unity, um, we're fortunately starting to see that um, uh, be accepted, right? Um, you mentioned the Sleeping Car Porters Union. And can you talk a little bit about, um, of course, we know the Pullman strike directly led to Labor Day being recognized as a federal holiday. And with the Pullman strike, even though you had the majority of the porters were black and so and they worked right in these Pullman cars, they weren't able to really strike because they were not allowed to join these unions. And can you talk about the divisiveness, this lack of unity and this lack of understanding that uh, laborers and workers can make better progress when we all come together and how this divisiveness may have affected the impact of labor unions. Yes, well, I think that, uh, you know, we look at uh, uh, the United States compared with other industrialized countries, we really lag behind them. Um, uh, the OECD, the which is the kind of rich man's industrialized countries organization, the Organization of Economic uh, uh, Development, OECD, ranks the United States 24th out of 25, the top 25 countries in terms of having uh, an adequate safety net uh, and, uh, you know, know, health care, minimum wage, uh, uh, and uh, health and safety in the workplace. Um, uh, the uh, and uh, the ability to have a union. Uh, we have uh, one of the lowest rates of unionization uh, in the industrialized world, really the lowest rate, uh, with the possible exception of France, uh, which uh, nonetheless has a strong sense of solidarity for ideological uh, reasons. And uh, uh, so we have lagged behind uh, others and unions, uh, which were in the 1950s and 60s, uh, still ascending. Um, uh, in 1955, unions represented 35% of uh, workers uh, who were uh, eligible for uh, representation, non-supervisory, non-managerial uh, uh, people, uh, And uh, today, uh, in the private sector, that has fallen to about between five and six percent, and overall, uh, 11 percent. And so there's been an enormous decline in unions. And uh, with that, I would submit uh, a decline that has had an adverse impact upon uh, uh, Black workers. The... the, uh, uh, the extent of inequality uh, on the both on the basis of both race and class has uh, has increased in the United States over the past half century. Um, intergenerational mobility, uh, uh, the ability uh, uh, of a uh, working class person, black or white, to go to the university uh, uh, has declined compared to other industrialized countries. Uh, which we always thought uh, were class-ridden and uh, 
uh, old schoolers. We were the land of uh, uh, the ability of people to move upward. No, this is not the case. Uh, uh, Robert Putnam uh, has uh, written a, a, a very important book called uh, uh, Upswing uh, recently, which details uh, the, uh, uh, in a, the extent to which inequality, um, I rather than we, uh, uh, a, a diminishment of the, a diminution of the collective interest uh, uh, has occurred uh, in this period, beginning in the really the early 19, uh, uh, the 1970s. And so we've had a, a real downward movement, which has hurt both black and white uh, together. And uh, I think one of the encouraging things today is that uh, some unions, particularly some locals of the service employees union, are, are, are trying to do something about this. Don't forget just one other thing uh, that the, uh, you know, the, the decline of unions, uh, the precipitous decline exists for a number of reasons. But one of them is that uh, union expenditures, use of resources to organize the unorganized has declined uh, appreciably from this period of growth of which existed between the 1930s and the 1950s. In the 1930s, unions were spending between 30 and percent of the, 30 and 50 percent of their budgets on organizing. Today, uh, there are no unions, um, with the possible exception of a couple of big amalgamated uh, unions, uh, spending that kind of money on organizing the uh, unorganized. So, the the law is responsible. Uh, as a factor in this decline, but much more than the law is responsible. Uh, there's got to be a symbiotic relationship between uh, uh, unions that want to grow and want to attract Black and Latino workers. There's got to be a symbiotic relationship between that posture and the role of the law, which has to be amended to, with the so-called PRO Act, which perhaps we can talk about uh, later on here, if you would like. Now, would you would you say that uh, racism is still a cancer, which kind of separates the uh, its effectiveness in uh, uh, encouraging uh, African Americans and people of color to uh, to join the traditional labor union? Well, uh, of course, racism uh, uh, is with us, and it is a, a cancer. I. Uh, Professor Dawson just mentioned uh, this report that I issued for the mayor of San Francisco, uh, uh, one of the regarded as one of the more progressive uh, cities, although not always in the area of race, uh, in the country. And uh, we found that uh, 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 there simply were no black workers in a number of the key uh, top skilled trades in the city of San Francisco workforce uh, itself. There were no programs providing for uh, advancement and acquisition of uh, skills and background which could uh, move uh, people uh, uh, forward. So racism remains a cancer, and racism is a is a factor in the uh, uh, in the fact that uh, uh, we are we have such a lower rate of representation in unions. Um, uh, in the United States compared to uh, other countries, which 
uh, have problems today in the area of race, as we know, uh, the French with the uh, with uh, Africans, with the Germans, with uh, Turks, and uh, uh, people coming from the Middle East, the Scandinavians, the same. But the United States has uh, struggled with this problem uh, much uh, longer, and uh, it has impeded uh, a more effective uh, cohesiveness, more uh, more effective concept, as Robert Putnam would call it, of we uh, rather than I. Uh, and uh, an ability to move forward uh, uh, collectively. You know, this affects uh, so much of our attitude in society, the whole business of vaccination today, the idea that, that uh, I have some kind of personal right not to be vaccinated, uh, even though it will, my, my uh, ability to do so will harm other people. Well, it's the same thing here. Um, uh, how, how, do we, how do we advance? And the unions are saying, through solidarity and to the extent to which they can overcome and disenthrall themselves of uh, past uh, uh, allegiance to racial barriers, they will be more effective. We, when I was at the NLRB, we had a number of cases, I would say are the, the new cases involving unions. You know, um, in the Kennedy, I first worked for the NLRB in the 1960s as a junior uh, uh, lawyer in Washington, uh, the Kennedy Board. Well, the Kennedy Board uh, held that uh, if there was racially inflammatory language used during organizing campaigns, that would be a basis for setting aside the election. You know, for instance, employers were saying that, uh, hey, the UAW is working with the NAAC to desegregate the schools. That's why you should be against the UAW. The head of the IUE, the International Union of Electrical Workers, is, is uh, he, he's a white fellow who we saw, we have a picture of him dancing with the black woman at a park. So the LRB said, oh no, the, the, these kinds of tactics are off the table. But now the new cases we have involving so-called racially inflammatory language and one that I had when I was chairman, which I wrote an opinion about, talking about in a book this, that's coming, this book that's coming out next year. Service Employees Union takes up the cause of a black woman who alleges sexual harassment by a white supervisor. And they pass out leaflets saying, we have always, we have been improperly touched for three centuries. We have always been improperly touched. Employers wanted to set this election aside. The union won the election. Employers wanted to set the election aside. And uh, my colleagues at the board wanted to do that. And uh, I uh, uh, spoke up and said, if you do this, you'll get the most blistering dissent you ever heard of. Well, uh, the opinion that I wrote uh, still appears in a case called Shepherd Tissue in 1998, uh, uh, saying that... Uh, this is perfectly, perfectly proper speech, perfectly proper attempts by unions to organize the unorganized and to focus uh, the black workers' attention upon the inequities which have existed in employment conditions. We can't blinker that, and we can't uh, uh, engage in happy talk uh, uh, assuming that that will go away. 
the NLRB almost wanted to do that in 1990. They did want to do that in 1998, but uh, uh, we got a much better result in the final uh, opinion. So these are the kinds of cases uh, that are emerging, uh, the new cases, which uh, uh, leave me with uh, uh, more upbeat than I have been about organized labor in recent uh, uh, in recent years. All right, and and looking forward to we're going to have to take a quick break, but looking forward to yeah discussing where we're going from here, and and hopefully there um, as you've noted some some improvements and some reasons to to hope. Uh, you're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour about the history of Labor Day and labor unions and the role race and racism have played in the labor movement. We have with us here in our Zoom studio, our guest, Professor William Gould IV. He is the Charles A. Beardsley Professor of Law Emeritus at Stanford Law School. We're going to take a quick break. We hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. Good evening. My name is Reginald Woods II, and I am a current 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And I would like to personally thank you for supporting and listening to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking show that is made possible by the Virtual Justice Project of the North Carolina Central University School of Law, as well as listeners like yourself. For more information regarding the show, or past episodes, or the latest happenings surrounding our host, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Legal Eagle Review. Again, my name is Reginald Wist II, and thank you for listening. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with our guests about the history of Labor Day, labor unions, and the role race and racism have played on the labor movement. And our guest is Professor William Gould IV. He is the Charles A. Beardsley Professor of Law Emeritus at Stanford Law School. He is a prolific scholar of labor and discrimination law, the author of several books, including Black Workers in White Unions, and he has a forthcoming book coming out next year titled For Labor to Build Upon, Wars, Depression, and Pandemic. So Professor Gould, right before the break, you were talking about a lot about the divisiveness that that we have seen in the history when it comes to unions and and that there is hope that we can grasp onto for the future. Um, and before we talk about that, I want to get your thoughts on the current, I guess the role that um, those that are in power, the tactic that they often use is to try and sow discord between groups who have interests that are aligned and they use race in order to separate them so that you don't see that progress. And you mentioned the kind of we versus I um, paradigm and, and there's this them versus us. And so oftentimes when you have race being 
uh, interjected into politics, you have people who are actively um, voting or, or acting in a way that's against their own interests. Can you talk a little bit about that dynamic and how it may impact what we currently see in this country when we have people talking about the white working class um, and, and oftentimes voting against interest and uh, those black and brown people who have the same types of interests but that are seen as them? Yes, yes. Well, I, I think that uh, a couple of things have to be said about that. I mean, one of the uh, virtues of uh, unionization was, uh, particularly once we got Title VII on the books, was the idea that uh, you, you could have uh, organizations uh, which would uh, which would be a kind of uh, uh, a petri dish for uh, the kind of democracy that we should have in society uh, generally. The idea was that uh, uh, workplace uh, uh, democracy uh, is the sine qua non for uh, 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 dem democracy in our society uh, uh, generally. Uh, and uh, uh, that's why I think that uh, it's uh, so important that uh, we both uh, amend the National Labor Relations Act to strengthen it and to make it uh, uh, what it should be to promote the uh, idea of uh, freedom of association for workers to band together to improve their conditions. Uh, and uh, uh, that's why I think that uh, these internal reforms that uh, uh, I've talked about, more resources going into organizing should be undertaken. But of course, politically, uh, what has happened is that uh, there have been, uh, this fellow Thomas uh, uh, Frank wrote this book a number of years called What's the Matter with Kansas? Uh, uh, you know, uh, distractions. Um, you know, the, uh, uh, we, we are distracted by issues that are unrelated to uh, uh, wages and employment conditions. Uh, uh, so that, uh, for instance, uh, uh, the uh, issues of relating to uh, sexual orientation and to uh, 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 the uh, abortion uh, issue have been uh, great vehicles to uh, uh, do two things, to uh, uh, focus uh, people who are in difficult economic circumstances on other matters unrelated to their uh, economic circumstances and to uh, really to uh, sometimes to undercut uh, black workers themselves uh, uh, and uh, say, hey, this is really what you should be uh, uh, focusing upon. Uh, so, I, so, so that I, I think that the distraction um, is, a, is a great problem. Now, you know, we've had in a number of states, very interestingly enough, uh, ballots and initiatives. Here in California, we are not too happy with the, the kinds of ballots and initiatives we're getting uh, these days, most particularly one that's coming up in a couple of weeks. But, but uh, you know, you look at a state like Florida uh, that supported Trump. Um, the, uh, but they supported minimum wage legislation overwhelmingly in, a, uh, in their referendum. Missouri, uh, same thing, ditto. But they repealed 
uh, right to work legislation when they were able to vote on it uh, directly. And I, I don't know, uh, particularly as a Californian, uh, that I can uh, be a proponent of uh, initiatives and uh, direct ballot, but uh, they do seem to have highlighted uh, the differences between the way many people will vote if presented, uh, if they're presented with uh, uh, divisiveness and uh, uh, what what they uh, are going to lose by uh, people who want to push forward and uh, uh, and the and the alternative, you know, they, they, it just uh, many of these states, uh, North Carolina seems to be changing, and politically are not even uh, competitive, uh, even though they have so many poor people uh, in them, and many of them have uh, so many uh, black people, Latino people within them uh, who need uh, the kind of safety net that other industrialized countries have. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, the South uh, seems to be the, uh, a death kill uh, for, uh, for the unions, uh, and uh, clearly that is something that plays out uh, in North Carolina and other uh, states around where even though there is uh, a progressive uh, movement uh, politically, uh, this uh, right to work notion, uh, which is uh, seemingly a bedrock of conservatism, uh, maintains uh, its, its, its hold. Uh, do you see a circumstance or circumstances where that is likely to change in the, uh, in the coming years? Um, it's really difficult uh, to say. Uh, you know, uh, one of the things that the uh, uh, promote the right to organize uh, uh, statute, which would amend the National Labor Relations Act, would do, would be to uh, uh, repeal uh, the provision of federal law, which allows for these state right to work laws. I, I, I think that. Uh, that will meet with uh, great resistance from the powers that be in the states that have right to work uh, legislation. And there's another problem as well that is staring us in the face for the foreseeable future. And that is the United States Supreme Court. Uh, three years ago uh, in, the, uh, in the Janus decision, Janus against American Federation of State County Municipal Employees Union, uh, the Supreme Court made out of whole cloth, an entirely new uh, constitutional doctrine to uh, find that uh, uh, non-unionists uh, who were uh, receiving the benefits that unions had negotiated for them in collective bargaining agreements, but didn't want to pay the same dues as anybody else, had a constitutional right uh, not to uh, uh, pay those uh, dues. This was... Uh, uh, compelled, uh, uh, this was a compulsion, a compelled uh, a subsidization, a, con a, a concept, a constitutional concept uh, that had never existed before. The only big Supreme Court case they were able to cite as precedent was uh, a very different one, the Barnett case during World War II, when Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, uh, people were not required to salute the flag. Uh, but that was uh, uh, entirely different. That was a manifestation of uh, a refusal to, to provide a manifestation of support 
Colin Kaepernick today um, uh, in support of a symbol that they disagreed with. It had nothing to do with compelled subsidization. And I'm afraid that even if Congress uh, and the president amend the National Labor Relations Act to wipe out, as they can, uh, right to work law. Don't forget, labor law in the private sector is basically national law, not state law. It's only state law uh, when the public sector is involved. And, and I'm afraid that if uh, Congress says, okay, as a matter of national law, uh, you can't have these right to work laws on a state level anymore. The Supreme Court is going to find a way to invoke the same concepts that they relied upon in the public sector three years ago. You may say to your, your lawyers may say, and you may say that, uh, well, wait a minute, uh, the private sector doesn't involve state action, which is normally a prerequisite for a constitutional issue. But uh, I, I wrote a piece uh, in the San Francisco Law Review about three years ago in which I outlined uh, uh, some of the contorted theories that the Supreme Court might use to take Janus and to uh, invalidate uh, legislative arrangements which uh, are at war with these right to work uh, ideas. Right to work is a, is a, is a misnomer it's an the right to work doesn't provide for a right to work. It provides uh, simply for the right not to pay dues for benefits that you get to a uh, from and to a union. Let me just ask this this quick question: uh, Why is unionization so strong and fervent in uh, the uh, professional athletic world? Well. Uh, uh, it's it's uh, it's a very interesting uh, uh, idea. I have to say, I don't want to put in too many plugs here, but uh, I wrote a book called uh, "Bargaining with Baseball" uh, in 2011, where I talk about this uh, labor relations in an age of prosperous turmoil. Actually, it's published by uh, in North Carolina there by Hawthorne and uh, uh, McFarland in in uh, North Carolina, and. Uh, Basically, it's this. Um, there, the antitrust laws uh, really kick in here. Um, uh, the antitrust laws normally prohibit uh, separate business entities from coming together and imposing uh, on workers uh, working conditions to make a long story short. And uh, uh, the separate clubs, even though they're part of leagues, have been regarded for the purpose of uh, antitrust law. The Supreme Court reaffirmed this a few years ago in a case called American Needle, uh, uh, Justice, one of Justice uh, Stevens's very fine opinion, uh, reaffirmed the concept that the clubs are separate entities. So, the only way that professional athletics outside of baseball can avoid antitrust liability when they affect employment conditions is to deal with unions because there is a so-called non-statutory labor exemption to the antitrust law, 
which means that unions and employers can get together and regulate wages and working conditions uh, appropriately and not violate antitrust law, even though if the employer was doing it on its own, it would violate antitrust law. So, surprise, surprise, a lot of uh, owners in the professional sports that are deeply anti-union uh, found a way to recognize uh, unions and deal with them uh, without too much of a problem because they couldn't function without them. And that's what's happened. Baseball, um, uh, since uh, Justice Holmes' uh, federal baseball decision in 1922, uh, has been in a different position uh, and uh, unions uh, uh, arose there. Uh, uh, again, I, I try to outline a little bit of this in bargaining with baseball. Uh, the uh, arose there because of uh, uh, different uh, uh, concerns. Uh, uh, baseball players were able to uh, um, uh, come together uh, largely, I don't usually believe in the uh, uh, individual leader school of history, but there was a gentleman named Marvin Miller who became head of the steel, the head of, was with the steel workers and became head of the baseball players. And he uh, promoted arbitration and uh, in baseball and, and uh, the players were able to use arbitration quite effectively. So much so that they got through arbitration, uh, free agency. You know, Kerr Flood, of course, uh, really kicked all of this off uh, before the baseball players became unionized by by suing baseball in antitrust. He lost, as others have lost before. But this really enhanced the consciousness of uh, of baseball players. Uh, uh, generally speaking. All right. That is so fascinating. Um, and this has just been an overall very educational discussion. And we can't thank you enough for your time, Professor William Gould IV, the Charles A. Beardsley Professor of Law Emeritus at Stanford Law School. Uh, as you have heard, he is the author of several books. He has another coming out next year. We employ you to, to be on the lookout for it. It is called For Labor to Build the Fawn, Wars, Depression, and Pandemic. Very timely. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleaglereview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.